Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastic. And this is our last episode of 2019. We will be back at the end of January after our annual solstice retreat. But in the meantime, if you find yourself looking for something to do on Friday when you'd normally be listening to Smarty Pants, might I suggest rating or reviewing us on iTunes? A minute of your time makes it much easier for other like-minded listeners to find us. We'd really appreciate it. First, though, we've got a conversation that just might change the way you're approaching buying gifts this holiday season, or the way you approach buying anything at all. In his last book, Junkyard Planet, the journalist Adam Minter went around the world following U.S. recyclables like cardboard, shredded cars, and Christmas lights as they were bought and sold and became new things. In his new book, Second Hand, Minter looks at what happens to all the things that get resold and reused as they are. In thrift stores in the American Southwest, flea markets in Malaysia, vintage shops in Tokyo, used electronic shops in Ghana. Who's selling these things and who's buying them? Does the fact that we feel like we can just donate something to a Goodwill or sell it at a thrift shop make us feel like it's okay to just buy more? What about the scale of all this stuff? Adam Minter joins us in the studio to talk about how we filled the world with all this stuff and what really needs to change for us to get out from under it, no matter where we live. Thanks so much for coming into the studio, Adam. Thank you for having me. So um, I wanted to start by asking how secondhand travels in the new global garage sale, such a good subtitle, is a follow-up and an expansion on your last book, which also sort of tread some of the same junky territory. Right. So the first book, Junkyard Planet, was really a look at what goes into your recycle bin and also sort of in a proverbial sense what goes into the industrial recycling bin and following that around the world mostly to China. Towards the end of that book, um, in the later chapters, I, I start questioning a little bit uh, the efficacy of, of recycling and the environmental sustainability of it. Certainly it is better than throwing things in the trash, but but it's only a little bit better in a sense. In the last couple chapters, I looked at reuse and, you know, is that the better option? Should we be extending the life of our things rather than sending them into the recycling stream where they're turned into commodities? And and the answer, obviously, is yes. So in part, this book is just an extension of that. How do we reuse? 
use things. The second part of it, though, sort of becomes more personal. Um, like a lot of people uh, these days, I have parents who filled up their houses uh, with stuff, and it became my responsibility and that of my sister after my mother passed away to figure out where to go with that stuff. And this isn't aluminum cans and and newspapers, although there were some newspapers involved. <laughs> but you know, but it was it's clothing and it's furniture and it's the durable goods, the things that we don't usually think of as recyclable. We just sort of think of as stuff you take to goodwill. And it was a very jarring emotional experience. And I remember quite clearly sitting in my car with my sister beside me with my mother's china in the back seat at a goodwill in Hopkins, Minnesota, waiting for our turn to drop stuff off. And it occurred to me that I should write about where it goes. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we have seen a glut of books about how to do it, mm-hmm. you know, how to purge your home, how to right. use the Kunmari method, or even um, the gentle art of Swedish death cleaning, right. which I think gets right at that problem. Right. Of what do you do with all this stuff, especially once the people for whom it meant the most have left. Right, right. And that was, you know, that was something that was in the back of my mind when I first started this book is where was all the stuff right. that was being conmarried out of people's homes? Where was that going? And and more to the point, did anybody want it? Because there, you know, one thing I learned in covering the recycling trade is people have almost this religious faith that if something is put in their recycling bin, the right thing, whatever that right thing might be, is going to happen to it. And they get quite upset if it doesn't. And generally, the right thing uh, does happen to it. And that is the person who wants it most, who's willing to pay the most for it, you know, will do something with it. I, I wasn't sure if that was going to be the case with all the stuff. So does anybody want this stuff? Well, that was the hard lesson of this book in I many respects. Guess the is answer that, is no. <laughs> yeah. Most of what you have in your home is valuable to you. You know, it's used by you once you are gone. And and I don't want to be morbid about it, but once you are gone, uh, it's not going to be of value to anybody. There will be a few things, you know, if there's precious metals within something, if it's a valuable piece of artwork, you know, those sorts of things will will last. But even, you know, good antique furniture these days is Mm -hmm. out of fashion and it's, it's not wanted. And so that was a very tough lesson. And it plays out through the thrift industry, at least in North America. Uh, The figure that, you know, sort of hit me like a truck was is the fact that your average thrift store in the United States only is able to sell about one-third of the stuff that goes onto its shelves. Um, that doesn't mean that the other stuff isn't sold. You know, some of it will be sold uh, onward to emerging markets. Some of it might be sold to be turned into raw materials. But it's incorrect, to put it politely, to assume that somebody is going to want it and to reuse it and to love it in the way that you did. Right. So, I mean, where does the other two thirds go? Well, it's, you know, if you're just going to take, for example, I spent quite a bit of time for this book in Arizona Mm -hmm. at the Goodwill of Southern Arizona, which is a 16 store chain of of Goodwills uh, near the border. And um, the stuff that doesn't sell in the stores, it'll go to an outlet center where it's actually sold by the pound. And then less than 20% of it sells. But you still, you know, the, the people who trade at the outlet centers have a pretty good idea of what has value there. The stuff that doesn't sell at the outlet centers um, will go one of two places. It will uh, go overseas or south to Mexico. Let me just say, at the Goodwill Southern Arizona, 90% of the consumers are Mexicans bringing it over the border anyway. Mm -hmm. But the stuff that doesn't sell in the stores, some of it will go overseas, and some of it is just going to end up in a landfill or incinerated. Wow. that's Yeah, those statistics are mind-boggling. And I I feel like there have been a lot of 
changes in the secondhand market, at least in how it's perceived. Mm -hmm. You know, we've got, in addition to that old stalwart eBay, we've got like Poshmark and ThreadUp and all of these things that my generation has latched onto in addition to consignment stores and thrift stores. I've seen some of this firsthand, but Mm -hmm. I know it goes way beyond my own personal experience. So from your look at the the whole industry, frankly, the global industry, how has secondhand changed in the past couple decades, like in aesthetics and pricing, clientele, reach, all that stuff? Well, there's been some really big changes, and and the biggest changes are are happening right now. First, just to, you know, touch on the Poshmarks and, uh, you know, the Mercaris and the, you know, the let goes and these, these, this new generation of apps, I think they're terrific. Um, And and they've made um, secondhand acceptable and accessible uh, to a whole new generation. I also think it's important to caution people into reading too much into their importance, because what they tend to do is basically uh, pick off the top of the resale market, the really good stuff, um, which is a very small part of it. If you look, for example, on Poshmark, what are the most popular brands? It's always very expensive brands, the Lululemons, the Patagonias, that's the stuff. It's not going to be the mass brands like the stuff you will find being sold at a Target or at a Walmart, um, which is what populates most closets in the United States. Why is that stuff not selling on those apps? Because the quality isn't terribly good, you know, and somebody is going to look at that and say it's not going to last that many washes. Um, The overall price of it is so low, you know, it's not worth it for somebody to sell it and pay for the shipping. When that happens, somebody will say, well, I might as well just go back to Walmart or Target and buy something new. And so that's a real issue is the decline in quality. Um, The second really big issue that's looming is the emergence of other sources of secondhand clothing, and it's already started. And one of the things that shocked me most when I was writing this book was being in West Africa, where I spent quite a bit of time, and seeing used Chinese clothes for sale in stalls, even in the smallest of towns. Um, And if you talk to people in the trade in Africa, they will say, yes, China is starting to send its used clothes into this region, and it's driving down the price of used clothes, not just, say, in Ghana, but also it's driving down the price that somebody like a Goodwill in southern Arizona can get because they're suddenly competing against China. And so it's making the commodity worth even less. And so this contributes to sort of what I would call, you know, a bit of a crisis of quality uh, in the secondhand industry. So even though there's these optimistic things happening, like the the apps, um, there's some some really troubling uh, developments on the horizon. Right. And it's not nearly enough to address the scale Right. of everything that we're producing. Right. Well, I have I have a friend who uh, I consider him a friend now, Robin Ingenthron. He's a major character in the last two chapters of the book. And Robin said something to me uh, a few years ago uh, that I, I've only recently begun to appreciate. And he said, you know, 25 years ago, uh, the secondhand industry uh, globally was sort of 1 billion people selling to 3 billion people, meaning that was the affluent 1 billion selling to the, you know, the emerging 3 billion who could afford secondhand. He says, the thing that's changed now is it's 3 billion selling to 3 billion. And that's optimistic, but it's also very challenging if you want to see the stuff recirculating. Right, because the scale is like three times what it was. Right. I know that the secondhand market extends far beyond clothing, but Mm -hmm. before we get to that, um, you did mention the African market for clothes. And I think that especially has been a controversial subject, Mm -hmm. shall we say, for the past couple of years, because several African nations in particular have stepped forward and said, no, we don't want any more secondhand Mm-hmm. clothing donations. We don't want those things dumped in Mali or Nigeria or wherever. Uh, 
the argument being that they're destroying the local textile business. What's your read on that? Right. Well, I think superficially, it's hard to argue with the idea that secondhand competes uh, with with new. It certainly does. I mean, at the Goodwill of Southern Arizona, there's uh, one store on Houghton Avenue that's across the street from a Walmart. And when Houghton prices the apparel in its store, it's very conscious of what's being charged at Walmart because it knows it's competing with it. Mm-hmm. And it, need, it knows it needs to go lower. So that's a very interesting phenomenon. And you do see that repeated in Africa. Um, But I do dispute the idea that secondhand is what is responsible for really destroying the uh, the African textile and apparel industry. Um, The African textile and apparel industry, there's no question it's declined precipitously over the last 25 to 30 years. But I think the factors that have most strongly contributed to that decline aren't the import of secondhand clothes, which I, I tend to consider a little bit of a side market, and more of the very factors that really devastated the American textile and apparel market, and that is the development of very efficient, very low-cost manufacturing of textile and apparels in East Asia in particular, and the opening of African markets to that apparel. And if you go and you talk to the secondhand traders, you know, in a place like Nairobi, which has a thriving secondhand trade, or in Accra, Ghana, or in Lagos, I mean, they will all, all tell you the same thing, that increasingly they find themselves competing against the import of East Asian textiles and apparel. So what's happened, I think, is that you've seen these imports, which which hollowed out the American apparel industry um, and its factories, uh, you know, around the same time. It's it's having the same impact on Africa. And in fact, you could say because the African economies weren't as robust and those economies weren't as diversified, the impact has been far more serious. And I certainly understand why the governments wanted to do this. Um, but I think it's frankly a misreading of the impacts of their economic liberalization programs from 30 years ago. Well, what about other kinds of goods that make their way into these secondary markets, electronics, for instance? Um, What does that market look like? And I mean, how do those things travel, get imported, get exported between nations. Yeah. Well, it's really the same way. I mean, again, you know, we we tend to have this dialogue in North America and Europe that this stuff is sent to to Ghana, for example. But again, it's also the case that it's purchased. So I actually went to Vermont, of all places, with a Ghanaian trader uh, by the name of Wahab Odoi Mohammed, who buys electronics. He's been buying them for years in Vermont and ships them back to his home country. He'll buy laptops. He'll buy monitors. He'll also buy some furniture and he will go down to the Bronx and buy used cars as well and sometimes put the computers in the cars that he imports in containers, believe it or not. Just a very efficient way of doing things. Um, But Wahab is not going to import garbage and he's certainly not going to import for recycling. You know, we've all sort of become familiar in recent years with these videos of of burning electronics in uh, Accra, Ghana, in a place called Agbagbloshi. If I say to someone, imagine electronics recycling in Africa, they usually think of these fires. Um, That stuff happens, but that's not the imported stuff. That's the stuff that's been used in homes for years and years and years, and it can't be repaired anymore. The stuff that Wahab brings in is sold to dealers who oftentimes touch it up, you know, clean up the screens a little bit, and then they put it out for sale. And the profit margins, which, you know, Wahab asked me not to reveal, are extraordinarily lucrative. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's a real business. It's supplying these regions with digital goods that are cheaper than what is new, sometimes more durable, and they help to bridge the digital divide, getting people on the internet uh, in emerging markets. Yeah. Well, I think it really highlights 
you know, the difference in worth for a lot of these objects, depending on where you're standing. Mm -hmm. You know, we can see that with a phone very easily, you know, wanting to turn over for the latest iPhone or Android or whatever. But you can also see it with other things, right? Like heavy antique furniture that Mm -hmm. is so sought after in Malaysia, for instance, that's like nobody wants here because it doesn't look good with the minimalist aesthetic. Right. Well, and that was, that was, if you want to talk about shocking moments, I live in Malaysia. There's a weekend flea market beneath our building and I sometimes walk through there and I struck up a conversation with an antique dealer down there and I was asking her about her furniture and I just assumed that she was getting it locally, this beautiful Victorian furniture. And she said, no, uh, I import it from the UK uh, because nobody wants it there. And she brings it in and she makes, you know, she triples her money on it. It's, it's an extraordinary trade. And it gets at, I think, one of the wider lessons of globalized secondhand. And one of the, you know, the lessons I took away from this book is don't assume you as the person in the rich country or you as the person with a house full of stuff knows what the value of your stuff is. The, the value of your stuff is set by the buyer, the person who wants it. And how they value it may very well be a black box to you. Right. Well, and that goes the other way, too. I mean, I loved uh, reading about the inside of some Japanese vintage and thrift markets yeah. where boring old champion sweatshirt was marked as like 1980s knitwear and sold for 60 bucks. I think more than it probably ever sold for here. Yeah. You're talking about Koenji, which is this Mm -hmm. wonderful neighborhood in Tokyo, which is filled with vintage shops that are filled with American vintage. Only the things that they think of as vintage are not necessarily the things that we would think of as vintage. And that champion knit sweatshirt is the perfect example. I used to wear one of those in junior high and I didn't think anything special. Of it, but 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 from the perspective of a Japanese vintage buyer, it's something very unique and special, and that flows in the opposite direction as well. Um, there is in Harajuku, which is a very famous neighborhood in Tokyo, uh, a kimono market, a used kimono market. And those kimonos are gorgeous. But if you look at who's shopping them, it's not Japanese. The people who value that stuff are foreigners visiting uh, uh, Tokyo. And I actually went to the Harajuku used kimono market with a Japanese friend, and she was kind of chuckling at, at these you know silly Americans who are overpaying for these things that you could get at any health club. But again, in the eyes of the Americans who were buying them, they were valuable, just as in the eyes of the Japanese who were buying these champion knit sweatshirts, they were valuable, they were special, they represented something to them. So with the exception of Japan, many of the secondhand markets we've discussed are in developing countries. And when we talk about that market, just like when we talk about climate change, it can sound a lot like developed, wealthy, usually Western countries dictating the terms of how everyone else should behave when they've been the ones, we've been the ones contributing most to climate change, to consumption, to creating this massive glut of secondhand products. So how do you negotiate knowing that reusing things is better for everyone from all countries, while accounting for the fact that these developing countries want their shot at the life we've already led and the goods we've already squandered in the West? Right, right. I'm, you know, and that's, you know, sort of one of my goals for this book, but just in general, if I had a policy goal, it's to it's to make a world safer for secondhand in a way, mm-hmm. and 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 the way you do that is make more durable goods. And and one of the arguments for that, and I think it's it's the best argument, is that if you look at life cycle assessments, 
the environmental impact of a product. What is the life cycle impact on the environment? You know, and always the single most important impact is um, how long you use it. So mm -hmm. the longer you use it, the lower the impact. And I'd love to see this kind of thing come up more in climate negotiations. It's just for people to start thinking more in terms of these durability issues as environmental issues, as climate issues, as water quality issues, as air pollution issues. Because ultimately that's what it comes down to. And I think you can even go so far as to make the argument that really the most pressing um, uh, environmental issue of our time is, of course, it's climate change, but ultimately I think it comes down to, to consumption. And so if you can start lengthening out the lifespans of these products, you're not going to fix everything, but you're going to have an extraordinary impact. Right. Well, and I think also thinking about the longevity of the product gets at a way to maybe shift the narrative and shift the way people think about it because mm -hmm. the price is lower over the long term. You are saving money. Exactly. Yeah, I mean that's that's sort of the beauty of the durability argument because it's it's you know it's it's an environmental argument for people who don't like environmental arguments. Right. Yeah. It's it's a rational economic argument. You know, spend more to save more. And that's something that's basic household economics. And if you can make that argument to people and if that's why they want to do it, fantastic. Well, I mean, that seems like a very easy consumer level fix. I think that kind of math works out mm -hmm. for a household. Bigger picture, though, broadly speaking, for the globe, for changing the way that things are manufactured, you know, raising product quality standards, labor conditions, wages, environmental protections. Do you have any ideas on how that could be changed? Well, I, you know, ultimately, you know, these are these are going to be system level changes mm -hmm. that you do need to think about. But, you know, I, I bring up in the book uh, the right to repair movement, which is a, a movement that basically is asking for manufacturers of electronics, farm tractors, anything that could be fixed to one, they have to publish their repair manuals to give people access to how things are are repaired and can be repaired because right now many companies use copyright to prevent people from doing that and second to make their repair parts available now that sounds like two very small fixes but but I think it actually could have a profound consequence because once people start evaluating their products on whether and how they can be repaired you know again it becomes a rational choice about you know what am I going to buy that I can actually make last longer once they start making those kinds of consumer choices, you know, the, the manufacturers are also going to adjust to that. And they're going to start making products that maybe are not more durable, but they're certainly going to want to be making products that are, are e more easily repaired. And at the same time, you're going to start sort of Xing out some of these white box um, uh, manufacturers, say, of electronics. These are people who are making sort of no-name brands of tablet computers. You know, these are not companies that are going to put out, uh, you know, repair manuals and are going to put out parts. Well, if that's the case, then we're not going to have those products on the shelves anymore. And that's going to be an overall benefit to durability of products globally. Um, so I kind of I kind of remain optimistic on right to repair. You know, I'm also, though, wary on legislating too much. You know, I certainly wouldn't want to legislate durability. Um, you know, if you start requiring companies to to manufacture durable, you know, to some durable standard, all kinds of unforeseen things can happen. And, and at the same time, I, I don't think you want to completely X out their ability to innovate in ways that maybe are less durable in, in ways we think are less durable now, but we just don't know how they're going to, to work out down the line. But, but I think a good place to start, a good place to start is with the right to repair movement. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, how do you think that squares with, you know, 
decades of pretty much a lack of legislation on corporations. If we think about like uh, we were talking about the living and environmental conditions, mm -hmm. you know, there is actually very little enforcement of right. these mega multinational companies as far as their standards go. You know, what's really interesting about right to repair, and I keep, I'm sorry, I keep coming back <laughs> to this, but it's, it's, it's the proposal that's out there. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, quietly, several big manufacturers on background of off record have said, you know, uh, we can do this. And we're okay with it. We just want to make sure that these smaller off-brand companies are doing it. Mm -hmm. You know, so you know that to me is really encouraging. And and they they want they just want to make sure it applies to everybody. That it's not just going to be them. And I think that's really encouraging. Um, you know, it's it's a very small step, but you know, towards you know sort of a more sustainable, more robust uh, secondhand economy. Getting there is is going to require small steps as well as uh, big steps. I mean, I just, I guess I hesitate to be too hopeful because um, the right to repair, for instance, wouldn't really apply to clothing. And clothing no. is one of the most polluting industries. In fact, I think it's the most polluting industry in the world. Right. Millions and millions of tons of waste a year. Sure. So how do you wrestle with something like that, that have had really tragic disasters like the Rana Plaza fire? If those things haven't managed to inspire consumer or corporate change, what can right you know it, it hasn't and 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 that's a real problem and that's that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book in the way that I did because mm -hmm. ultimately I think it's going to require some consumer level thinking about consumption you know and and I don't start this book as an environmental book mm -hmm. you know I really start it as a socio familial book and I really want people to appreciate sort of the the spiritual the psychological it's just the time suck, the inconvenience of all this stuff upon them, you know, and I think that's a better way in many ways to get people thinking about these issues and buying less. Um, you know, perhaps the most gratifying um, responses I've had to this book has been people saying after reading those early chapters, I don't want to buy anything more. Mm. You know, is that going to, is that message of this book going to echo across the Pacific? No, it won't. But I do think like it's time uh, for developed countries, developed societies, start talking about the, the emotional, physical, s spiritual toll of this consumption. Adam Inter's book, Secondhand, really is a journey around the world's global garage sale. A little like Dana Thomas did in her book about fast fashion, which we covered in September, Minter lays out the scale of the problem, but ultimately you do walk away from this book feeling a little more hopeful. We've got links in the show notes to his book and to some pretty damning evidence in the fight against massive consumption. And remember, this is our last episode of the year. We'll be taking our annual winter break, but I'll be back at the end of January, refreshed and ready to introduce you to some of the most interesting voices writing today. So see you in 2020. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 